Three with Cardi B and bet you wanna. Well, join us on Facebook Live if you can, because very nearly it's time to say hello to James Marsh, and we're going to go off to the movies. Well, basically Marsh's front room. Let's say hi first of all, though. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Incidentally, if if you're into a bit of the Blackpink, or you're interested in knowing a little more yeah. about Blackpink, yeah, uh, there is a fairly hagiographic, but at the same time uh, useful documentary on Netflix right now. Oh yeah, uh, sort of in, as, again, essentially introducing the band to the world and uh, sort of showing how they got into it, what their backgrounds are. Et so cetera. you're telling obviously me, obviously, it's made. Mm-hmm. You're telling me there's an, a documentary on Netflix that we need to watch. Yeah, yeah, about Blackpink. Okay. You can, if you're curious to learn more about these these four girls who are taking over the world. Yeah. Who uh, was it? Was it Reuters or Bloomberg the other day pronounced them to be the biggest band in the world? And obviously, they are the bastions of musical taste. Of course. So uh, absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, so K-pop is taken over, and they, you know, and they do break some molds because one of them is Thai. You know, in Korea, you know, they're very specific about the the look that they put out and about uh, preserving so, sort of for want of a better phrase of Korean purity in a, a many different aspects of their culture yeah and one of the big talking points is that uh, I think her name's Lisa in the band is actually Thai she's not even Thai Korean she's just Thai well there you go thanks for that little tidbit let's talk about the crown so yes today we will be talking about the crown season four uh, there, there are that's obviously on Netflix. There are films out in cinemas. Cinemas are still open. Uh, there are Taiwanese films, I Weirdo and The Silent Forest. Yeah. There are local films, Memories to Choke on, Drinks to Wash Them Down. That's one movie, and The Infernal Walker. There's also a Spanish horror movie, Mal- Malasana, Thirty Two Malasana Street, I believe yeah. is the English title that they're using. Uh, so that there's plenty to uh, to get to. There's a little bit of news we should start with. Go on. Uh, the last blockbuster of the year that was hanging on to get a theatrical date was uh, Wonder Woman, 1984. <laughs> yeah. Which is the, the 80s set sequel to uh, the most successful DC uh, expanded universe movie that Warner Brothers has released to date. Mm-hmm. What they have said now is in the US, it will go to HBO Max. It will play some theatres, wherever theatres are open globally, it will open on the 17th of December, and then wherever HBO Max exists, which is, I think, just the US pretty much at the moment, maybe Canada as well, um, that will be on Christmas Day. Is that just so a brand, for Hong Kong, James, or is that some different kind of format for HBO? HBO Max, no, it's their sort of digital on-demand ah, right, uh, right, right, right. premium platform, uh, you know, where, which is their big sort of contender. It's, it's the sort of Warner Brothers uh, platform to compete with Apple and uh, Amazon and Netflix and all the rest of it. it. Uh, so really, it, it's, it's no real great change for Hong Kong audiences. Suffice to say, they are now committing to a release date, uh, 17th of December, assuming cinemas are open. Because uh, we were hanging in there waiting for the US to make up their mind. What were they going to do? Uh, but now we know. So if the cinemas are open in Hong Kong, we will get Wonder Woman. I'm sure you're very excited. Massively, mate. Massively, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, James Bond news? You always like to do that. 
No, it's still in the balance. We don't know yet. I mean, I think HBO Max is one of the uh, streaming platforms that has been bandied about as possibly bidding on a, on getting it as a getting a one year streaming license for it. But to date, there are no updates as far as I'm aware. All right then. Well, let's crack into it, shall we? No. Yeah, well, let's start with The Crown Season 4, which uh, essentially covers the 80s. You know, we have Olivia Colman continuing, as, and Tobias Menzies continuing as the Queen and Prince Philip, as they did in Season 3. We have Helen the Bottom Carter continuing as Prince Margaret. And essentially what this does is it covers from the assassination of Lord ba- Mountbatten by yeah. the IRA in 1979. They blow up, blew up Charles his fishing Dance. boat Amazing. with him and his grandkids on it. Right. Yes, Charles Dance, you know, wanted more of him, but sadly, that's the fate of his character. There is that. Um, and it goes right through, yeah. <laughs> if they start rewriting things like that, that, we might be in trouble. And it goes right through the 80s to the, essentially the fall of Thatcher uh, in sort of 1990. Uh, the vote of no confidence and sure. challenge to her leadership of the Conservative Party, etc., etc. So, of course, the big new additions to the cast this year are Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana, uh, played by, respectively, Gillian Anderson of X-Files fame. How crazy is that? Yeah. I know, it's insane. I mean, she has been... As far as I know, she is 100% American. Uh, But in recent years, she has been sort of dipping her toe into British roles previously. And very well. You know, she's got the accent down. And here, it's absolutely phenomenal. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see sort of Emmys and Golden Globes and all the rest of it heading her way at the end of the year. Um, It's remarkable. She completely sort of disappears inside the role. You forget for long stretches that you're not just watching Margaret Thatcher. Almost as good as Spitting Image, and I think that was Faith Brown, I think. Anyway... (laughs) Uh, and then you also have Emma Corrin, um, unknown to me before now, playing uh, Diana Spencer, who obviously becomes uh, Princess Diana. Yeah. And it covers the very rocky relationship between her and Prince Charles, uh, who was originally dating her sister. I don't think I knew that bit of it. I didn't either. <clears throat> and so they met at the at the Spencer estate. Uh, the whole time, of course, he's still madly in love with Camilla Parker Bowles, who is married herself, and is kind of kind of stringing him along. The, you know, the Crown always gets into a lot of trouble and always draws criticism, uh, if not from the royal family itself, then from the royal family commentators. You know, and apparently they are most displeased uh, yet again with their portrayal here, uh, which, like you said just before we went on went on air, is, is far from favourable. You know, we, this really is a sort of warts and all depiction of the royal family. Uh, and like you said, it's a, you, you said just before we came on, what do you say? It's a great show, but you really don't like them. That's what I said about the last series. It, it, it's one of those things that makes you really question the British aristocracy. Some people, anyway. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because you find... I mean, in, in in, this series has been sort of... This season's been different for me because I remember these events, or most of them. You know, not, Perhaps not the very early ones. But um, I remember a lot of this stuff, and so that is sort of new a new experience to me that we're covering ground that I experienced yeah, that's, firsthand. That's the slightly weird and, thing about this. <clears throat> yeah, and so there is an element of kind of sort of nostalgia to it. And obviously I live thousands of miles from the country where I grew up and where all of this is taking place. And so 
there are elements of it that make me kind of nostalgic, make me, dare I say, patriotic, certainly make me, uh, you know, a little homesick, just as you're like, oh, yeah, you know, these are some of the things that I associate with my childhood. You know, particularly just the, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret essentially, Thatcher. was... Yeah was just this looming presence throughout my childhood not too close thankfully but uh um and so it's kind of it's kind of strange so on the one hand yes these are sort of caricatures these are dramatizations and are uh, exaggerated for the sake of drama and entertainment but at the same time there is a sort of one foot in reality throughout that uh you can't help but kind of be not attracted to but to you know react to respond to um there's a number of key events obviously that are covered here uh like i said that yes the rocky relationship between charles and diana uh you know stuck in a love triangle rocky or totally and utterly awkward <clears throat> well i think i mean uh, for me charles is one of the most fascinating characters in this show Again, you know, not, really? I'm, not, I'm not particularly fascinated by Prince Charles himself. But in this show, I think they've done a really good job with him. Like the whole last season where it was all about him being away at school and, yeah. you know, really struggling to sort of find an identity for himself. And, and that carries through here. And uh, <clears throat> Josh O'Connor, who, who plays him, does a great job of uh, sort of being, evoking being emp empathy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so evoking empathy, if not sympathy, whilst being pretty awful at the same time. But he is, you know, unloved almost unanimously by the rest of the royal family, as it is depicted here. Yeah. But, and desperately in love with someone he can't have. And he's being forced into this marriage with a woman who, at least at first, loved him, but for whom he but, had... James, no surely, um, didn't Camilla suggest, according to these guys, Camilla suggested that he put the, put the, mask, the mask on, if you like? Yeah, she said go, uh, go ahead with it because, I mean, the indication here is that Camilla's never going to leave her husband. You know, the Cam well, Camilla is, all, is, is... Sure, but at, in this period of <laughs> yeah, time, yeah, you know, yeah. she is to a degree stringing him along. She just likes having both men at her disposal, sure. pretty much. I mean, her, her husband is something of a, of a sort of absent presence, a remote presence throughout the, all of this. Um, but, you know, I find increasingly Charles is becoming the focus for me and, and like the, sort of the, the dramatic anchor of, of all of this. I mean, Olivia Colman is fantastic as the Queen and I think Tobias Menzies as Prince Philip is rather, um, rather amazing. I want to ask you about that character throughout Series 2, uh, probably started about Series 2, again, played absolutely brilliantly, but they have painted him yeah. as a really nasty piece of work throughout, apart from that one scene where he goes to the retreat with the priests. And he sits down yeah, and just starts talking. with the Dean of Windsor. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that, that episode alone went a long way to sort of really humanising the character. Well, that was it. Um, and I think, I think that's the beauty of the performances, because I think across the board, you do... Well, I certainly found myself, you know, feeling empathy for these characters, despite recognising how awful they are, mm. how entitled, how privileged, how detached, all the rest of it that they are. I felt, sadly, Helena Bonham Carter's Princess Margaret is somewhat sidelined, in this season, she's not given very much to do, um, and she's I don't know horrible. If... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you know, Helen Bonham Bottom Carter is obviously great at that. But you know, there there are certain key focuses. It's it's the royal wedding and the the relate rocky relationship. It is also you know the very antagonistic sparring between the Queen and Thatcher 
throughout the 80s, uh, which, is, which is fascinating. They have so many of these sort of tete-a-tetes, which, which are obviously completely fabricated for the, for the series. Yeah. You know, there's no way of knowing what, what went down. And speaking of that, there's obviously that great incident when Michael Fagan broke into the Queen's bedroom, hmm. and there's an entire episode built around that incident. Again, something that we, of course, do not know what they spoke about. Uh, and it's a bit of what's called a bottle episode in TV parlance, I believe. Like the trouble Where it kind of tribbles. exists. In, if in you Star, want. In Star Trek. It kind of exists. <laughs> it exists on its own, uh, you know, out, outside of the rest. Uh, so it's quite a detour because they give, um, they go into Fagin's entire sort of backstory and motivations for what drove him to attempt to break into successfully not once but twice all right james hold your horses for a second because it's very nearly time for us to go to the news if you'd like to join in of course join us on facebook live you can put your questions up there and your comments right after the news i've got one question i'm not winding you up. i've got one question about a certain piece of symbolism in the crown that seems to have come back time and time again i want to see what you think but for the time being have your coffee and we'll be back in just a second Still with James Marsh. Join us on Facebook Live if you'd like to chip in. Got a cu- couple of comments here. Tim says, started watching The Crown a few days ago, halfway through season two, hooked. Howard, hello. He says, Gillian Anderson is American, but she grew up in London. To be honest, I thought she was British. So there you go. Job job done by Gillian Anderson. James? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, she's fantastic. You forget it's her. And I, I'm sure we will see her name popping up in... So the, the Emmy nominations, lists, Golden Globes, you name it. Right, we were talking about The Crown season four before the news. My question is, throughout the whole Crowns, whenever they go to Scotland, there's this massive symbolism with deer stalking or hunting these deers, hunting these creatures of beauty. They're massive, and these shots, they see these really elegant, majestic creatures, and it's all about the royals and their friends shooting them, and they make a big deal about this. And in this uh, in this series, just last week, I think, it was, uh, I know, a, a tourist, a Japanese tourist, wings the the animal and you see it limping yeah. and and it just looks so stunning but it's injured and it's limping and they're talking about finishing it off you know where i'm going with this what do you reckon is the symbolism of this it's the way it's shot it's not just deer stalking sure well i think it works on a number of levels i mean there's the literal uh, level where it's it sort of sing, singles them out as being kind of uh, wealthy and uh, you know elite in in the fact that they can afford to do this and they have the privilege to do it. It's seen as a very sort of upper class privileged uh, you know um, activity. It's a thing for sure, James. But I'm talking about the way these producers spin it. They really no make no. no. You, I mean, my yeah, okay. You know what I'm on about. Yeah. Allow me, allow me to get to it. Um, so on the one well, hand, yes, yes, yeah. it signals that. Well, when you stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, fairly obviously the symbolism is that they are the deer, you know, and that the, they are feeling persecuted and hunted in the same way, you know, in the eyes of the people, in the eyes of the press, you know, more than ever before, their role in society is being questioned, their role in, you know, British society, whether the, the country should continue to financially support them, all the rest of it, in the same way that they are, um, 
continuing this this outdated uh, pursuit that most people disagree with, which is deer hunting. That's one way of looking at it. I mean, I think I'd say yeah, the symbolism well, here is that it's a thing of beauty, it's a thing of nature, and they have no qualms about ending it. Uh, sure, but they, you know, they justify it saying that it's all about um, maintaining a balance, the balance of the countryside and the ecosystem and all the rest of it, and yeah. I think there's an element of that. But no, I think it's... Is that they very much relate to this? You know, they, they are increasingly being seen as an outdated, elitist waste of money and uh, unnecessary and cruel uh, blood sport. In the same way that um, that the public perceives them, and also that um, th this is how they treat everybody. This is how now they treat each other. It. Yes, that's good. Anyway, I just wanted you to know, throw that in because. It's just, it's not just like, oh, let's go deer hunting. They really go to town on this. It's actually very oh, beautiful yeah, no, the it's, way it's shot. It's certainly no accident that the series spends as much time as it does showing them do this kind of thing. Right. And I think, yeah, it can be interpreted, interpreted a number of ways. Okay. Uh, so we should probably move on. Suffice to say that, yeah, The Crown Season 4 is good. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of Taiwanese okay I'm going to rattle through a few things pretty quickly yeah. there's a couple of Taiwanese films worth mentioning I Weird Weirdo is a story about a young guy with OCD you know mm -hmm. he uh, has to live his life by a very strict routine he has to stay immaculately clean he's got this great sort of aversion to dirt and, and mess and you know must have his entire daily life regimented he doesn't go out of the house very often at all he works as a freelancer as a translator so he can do it all at home yeah. however when he does venture out on I think it's the 15th or 16th of every month uh, he dresses up in full sort of PPE uh, in order to do so and then one day when he's on the, the MRT as it's called in Taiwan he sees a girl dressed similarly follows her catches her shoplifting and they end up sort of having a, uh, a conversation and they start sort of seeing each other and they strike up a relationship. Right. Uh, she she doesn't have OCD, but she has sort of a, a very serious allergy to sunlight, and so she similarly has to stay indoors, has to dress mm. the same way, okay. and uh, they they move in together and they start a relationship. This is very sort of pressing because obviously this is a film that was made last year before uh, lockdown, pa pandemic, whatever. Sure. But it it's all about. Uh, you know, lockdown. It's all about social distancing. It's all about uh, how we perceive or how we our perceptions are changing relating to these things, relating to uh, dirt and bacteria and germs and what you know how uh, real these threats are. Are uh, that their relationship is very close and very romantic, but they refrain from physical interactions because that even that for them is too gross. So it's all about maintaining intimacy without physical contact. Yeah. Um, it was shot on... It's, I believe his first-time filmmaker, I think he was an editor before, he's called Liao Mingyi, and it was shot on an iPhone. And for the first part of the film, at least, it's shot in kind of portrait frame uh, aspect ratio. So the, the sides of the screen are black, and it feels very constrictive. That's obviously deliberate. That is uh, visual symbolism of their mental state and how they feel sort of con con constrained by their um, disorders, if you like. And then at a very pivotal juncture in the film, our main character, Po Ching, his OCD just vanishes. He wakes up one morning and he can touch the dirt. He can leave a mess. He, can't, he doesn't need to make the bed. 
and he ventures outside on his own. And this causes all kinds of problems within their relationship, but also the frame then expands to the full sort of 16 by 9 widescreen uh, as a similar sort of sim- visual symbol, symbol of the change in the mood. I thought it was really, it's really fun. It's really sort of quirky, offbeat, eccentric, sort of rom-com. Uh, it's sort of, the production design is very good, lots of sort of bright colours, uh, brightly lit uh, locations. Also kind of giving the whole thing a slightly surreal, slightly unrealistic uh, visual bent to it, which I think is also deliberate. It's also sort of showing them how, showing us how they're, view of the world is unrealistic okay. and is heightened and is cartoonish and what have you. Yep. It's called I Weirdo, as in I do, as in like a marriage proposal, but with with a kind of grammatical pun, weird do, weird do. doesn't entirely work, but it's a, it's a good movie. Rock on. What's next? Uh, moving on. Moving on, also from Taiwan, The Silent Forest, which is a very hard-hitting drama based on real incidents that took place at uh, deaf schools it's stories of sexual and physical abuse, uh, both by other students uh, and also by staff and how uh, the authorities covered it up for a long time. We follow a young lad as he's starting at this new school and it seems very idyllic. You know, the staff seem really nice and it's in the middle of the forest, in the middle of nowhere, and there's a girl he likes and all the rest of it. And then he hears strange noises coming from the bathrooms one night because it's, it's like a boarding school in a remote location. Yeah and quickly discovers that there is sort of endemic, systematic sexual abuse going on amongst the students, all being sort of masterminded by one particular guy who's uh, played by this uh, young Korean-born actor actor, uh, who uh, must only be sort of 16, 17, something like that, but is quite terrifying just in his blank stare he's called Kim Hyun Bin just the blank stare the emotionless cold heartedness um, it's a story that you've kind of seen before but it's done particularly well here it reminded me of a um, I want to say it's Polish no Ukrainian film called The Tribe which is also about kind of abuse at a school for the deaf now that film is told is told only in sub in um, sign language without sub without subtitles and without narration so you don't know what they're saying but very quickly because of the emotional rawness of the situations and the performances you you understand exactly what's going on now this film doesn't have quite the ferocious punch of that film nevertheless uh it's a it's a really pretty strong pretty bold well-performed piece of work and it's based on true incidents which makes it all the more shocking that's called the silent forest that okay. is also out brilliant all right then um couple of local films i want to talk about mentioned very very quickly there's a very low budget indie little anthology film called memories to choke down drinks to sorry memories to choke on drinks to wash them down which is a four-part anthology all directed by a couple uh Leung ming kai and his uh, partner kate riley who's an american actress okay um it's four very different snapshots of very different cultural uh, perspectives on Hong Kong. The first story is an old, um, an old lady who lives with her Filipino helper and she's got dementia. And it's about just coping with her as she keeps repeating the same stories, wandering off and needs to be uh, controlled and looked after, but at the same time needs to be nurtured and cared for. Mm-hmm. In, um, it's somewhere out in Yunlong Canton, somewhere that way. Um, the second part is about two brothers 
who are spending the night looking through the uh, the stock at their old family toy store, toy store, uh, which their mother used to run, but now she's being forced to sell up. It's, it's in Shamshi Po. There's redevelopment going on, um, and one of them wants still running, and obviously one of them is, has got a family, and he wants to sell up and move on and get some money out. But so that's a really interesting look at just sort of the shifting uh, of uh, businesses in Hong Kong. You know disappearance of small bit family-run businesses obviously the toy industry is is a great sort of di- dead industry in hong kong now and and, and and an iconic one because that for many years was a big absolutely. deal wasn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah i think that's the first thing i ever knew about hong kong is that at the bottom of all my toys said made in hong kong yeah. and <clears throat> and you know and obviously shifting perspectives it's about that that uh, serious step stepping into sort of adulthood and changing of responsibilities and all the rest of it it's very nicely handled third story actually stars kate riley the co writer director uh, as a English teacher working at a government school and she's uh, it's a series of uh, meetups between her and her colleague Gregory Wong there's a kind of undercurrent of rom- romance between them but then she goes off to a she keeps coming back from a new placement at a school in Beijing but every time they meet up they go to a different sort of street food stall so it's a bit of food porn going on uh, you know they go for Chang Fan and then they go for it's called Yun Yong um, Yun Yong you know the tea coffee mix drink um so that and that's quite interesting and they, they there's a, some commentary about the school system and the education system going on there as well so worth and it. then the final yeah yeah the final chapter is a sort is a documentary about a district councillor in the run-up to the elections and with the you know the background of the uh, of last year's protests and uh, the implementation of the uh <clears throat> you know the national law and what what impact that makes and all the rest of it and that's quite that's quite interesting because it's not a sort of a glowing uh, championing of these young political fighters. You know, the girl comes quite flawed in many, many ways and somewhat nonchalant about her responsibilities, about her goals. Uh, but it's also a fascinating sort of look at the sort of the mindset of, of young, active Hong Kongers. Right. Uh, so that's it's it's inter- it's, it's fascinating. All right, uh, less interesting is the in, is the infernal walker, uh, which is feels like a relic of a, another time. It's a mashup of kind of infernal affairs and a really? dozen other uh, <laughs> sort of cop triad dramas that you've seen. It's called Infernal Walker, which is a deliberate evocation of both Infernal Affairs, which are two very sort of obviously successful series about undercover cops. And guess what? There's an undercover cop. And it's all just about them dealing with their, with with that um, that situation. You know, one, they, one of them Deja wants to go straight, basically. one of the other ones fearing, fearing for his life, and it's done really tackily, poorly, cheaply. I, I, it was an ordeal at ninety minutes. I've got to be honest. Right, uh, one last film that's also out is a Spanish horror movie called Thirty Two Malasana Street. Beautifully, uh, beautiful period detail. It's set in the 1970s about a new family moving into a dilapidated apartment in, uh, you know, these old walk-ups in uh, the centre of uh, Madrid. Very quickly, creepy stuff goes on. Uh, there is, there are bumps there in the and in the night. There are things moving in the shadows. It literally covers every single possible horror movie cliche you could think of. It does them fairly efficiently and effectively it does have jump scares it does have creepy moments in it but it's literally like it made a checklist of every single possible 
<laughs> cliche of this kind of supernatural horror movie and did all of them. So what horror movie is it like? All the horror movies. Uh, but if you need a horror fix, poster, you know, with the kid with the kids with the back to you, looking at a door corridor, take it from there. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They couldn't choose which horror movie to be like, so they decided to be like all of them. Mm. And as a result, you know, they're as good as few of them. I just want to take you back to the movie you talked about a second ago that you said was cheap and nasty, and it's a mashup of all sorts of things. If you wanted to be positive, you could say it was a sort of homage to the eighties in Hong Kong movie scene. Or perhaps the mm -hmm. early nineties, that vibe, you know, with uh, everything you said done on the cheap and tacky, and probably loads of sync sound and this, that, and the other. If you want to look at it that way, but Jay. that, <laughs> but that would be if I wanted to be positive but about you it. Don't I hear you? All right then. It doesn't. It doesn't deserve my positivity. I'm afraid. All right then. So uh, yeah, just wrap up what you've been talking about today, if you would. Okay, so the, the best film out this week is I Weirdo, which is this Taiwanese film all about sort of... It's, it's a rom-com for the COVID era, okay. even though it didn't know it at the time. Yeah, okay. Um, also, also, Silent Forest is good, if, if pretty heavy. And if you want to sort of support local filmmakers and watch something based in Hong Kong, the anthology Memories to Choke On... Dot, 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 is, uh, is worth seeking out. Obviously, if you're staying at home and you haven't already done so, The Crown it is. Yay! Well, I think we're going to come back to this next week because obviously more people will watch more series and stuff yeah. like this. Tell not, us, not everybody binges it on the first day like I do. Yeah, I exactly. I, I mean, I'd be interested to to find out what people think about it. The symbolism, our thing of saying uh, it was just us, right, James? We were saying, "Oh, you really didn't like them." And I tell you, I've never felt sorry for Margaret Thatcher in my life, but in that scene when hmm. she when she goes to Balmoral, I did. That's that's the level we're at there. Oh, and they put her through the test. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah well, that, it's well, crazy. <laughs> it's really good. All right, mm -hmm. James, take care. I love your work. We'll do it again next week at the same time. That's James Marsh. Yeah,